Hello, and welcome to PwC's CFO Direct podcast, your source for technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting, and regulatory updates. My name is Heather Horn. I'm a partner in our national office, and it's great to have you with us today. We're going to take a closer look at the state of implementation of the new leasing standard in November 2018. We have a few topics for you. Overall readiness, I'm sure that's of great interest to benchmark where you are compared with your peers. Transition issues, and then really looking at best practices as people complete their implementation. Joining me today are Latina Vicanye, Julian Pierce, and Mark Jerusalem. Julian and Mark are both in PwC's national office, and Latina is part of our Capital Markets Accounting Advisory Group. So let's start. I think everyone out there, no matter their state of readiness, is wondering how they're doing. Even if they feel super prepared, probably still have some open questions. Some people may feel behind, a lot of different things. I guess, Mark, let's start with like what we know. What information do we have about where people are with their adoptions? Well, sure. So we've seen Q2 disclosures, and we've conducted some surveys that kind of wrapped up at the end of June. And as of the end of June, we are aware of two large companies that have already adopted the standard, two and only two, Target and Microsoft. As far as our survey results go, only about 4% of companies have reported that they have completed their 842 implementations. Um, so that's a, a pretty small number. 76%, however, said that they were more than halfway done, which directionally leaves about 25% of the folks who appear to be less than halfway done with uh, only about a month ago before your end. Yeah, so is what we mean by halfway done is more or less they're gone through their assessment. They feel pretty good about the completeness of their portfolio. Um, they've identified the key issues, and now they're really working through system implementation. So that implementation can take a various forms depending on the level of integration um, and customization. But for the most part, they're going through and loading the data. They're testing the system at both a transactional as well as a financial reporting level. Okay, so then I guess... To the extent people are sort of focused on their systems, and I know there's been a lot of talk that maybe the systems themselves may not be ready. I mean, what are we seeing in terms of system readiness in particular, and what should people do if they feel like they're not ready? Yeah, so that's that's a, a tough one because there are definitely a wide range of what we would consider readiness, and it may have a different definition system by system. I think in a lot of cases, um, with the vendor systems, we're still seeing roadmap items, uh, updates being pushed through, even as recently as you know right now, um, and and there still may be more updates to to be made throughout the rest of the year um, in terms of you know, our, the organizations that we're, we're seeing, there may be some level of expectation gaps in terms of what they thought the system was going to be able to do and what they're uh, actually able to do. And so for the most part, I think what we're seeing is companies being able to get the data that they need to do the financial reporting that they're going to need to do. They may need to add some manual workarounds to be able to get the information that they need at the level that they need it based on their own internal reporting structures. Um, but a lot of the reasons why companies may be feeling like they might not get there and looking at the system might in part have to do with when they started, how much resources that they put towards it, um, but also challenges with data implementation and just some of those roadmap items. So best practices is think about where they can get the data manually uh, if necessary to then be able to comply with the standard. Okay, so, and I know we're going to talk more about best practices um, which will be particularly helpful for those 25% of companies that are 
not at least halfway done. But I guess for any companies that are having these system challenges, it sounds like you may have sort of a day one implementation and then still be looking towards the longer term. So I'm, and you're nodding. Yeah, we're definitely seeing room for improvement, right? Um, In terms of getting what you need to basically meet the compliance requirements and then think about um, maybe some of the additional things to get in that will help with some of the future loads for day two. Okay, so then probably key reminder we should make to people is that if you do start to go down that path, just make sure you have the right control structure in place. So very good, thank you for that. So with that, why don't we turn to some recent developments as well as discussion of transition options since we're talking about day one accounting. And I know this summer, um, good news for a lot of adopters because the FASB did um, put in place a new transition option which allows Adoption as of one one nineteen for calendar year end companies, but I know Jillian, it's not quite that simple. So can you walk us through the new option and then some of the considerations? Right, sure. So maybe just a level set. The original guidance only had one transition option and required that companies effectively reflect the new guidance at the beginning of the earliest period presented. So for a public year end company that will be adopting beginning in twenty nineteen. That meant that they would need to go back and effectively restate and show the new guidance in both 2017 and 2018, in addition to the current year. Now, with the new option that the FASB just issued in July, companies have an alternative where instead of going back and restating those prior years, they can effectively reflect the guidance just beginning in the current period, so as of 1-1-19, which I, I think we're hearing you know, generally probably is, is easier and eliminates some of the complexities in dealing with the, the prior year updates and adjustments. But I think the one key thing to highlight is that in either transition option, companies are still required to apply the guidance on a modified retrospective basis. So effectively what that means is you're still going to need to account for all of your existing leases or leases that have commenced prior to your effective date and be recording those using a cumulative effect adjustment as of the beginning of the period, depending on which option. So you don't totally get out of kind of all of the work. It's not a true prospective approach, which I think we have been hearing some people refer to the new option as prospective. So maybe just to dispel that myth, um, you know, still is a lot of work. And to Latina's point, you need to be accumulating all the data to be able to record those day one entries. Um, really the change now as I think about it it is just you know what period are you really recording right so basically you don't have to effectively go back and restate but you do have to record cumulative effect yeah so so Jillian thanks for that I guess let me ask you another question then I know you know as we think about transition one of the a lot of the big decisions people need to make are around the different practical expedients that are available and whether or not they should take them in their adoption. Um, so the one that's probably talked about the most is the package. And so can you just give a few quick reminders about the package and how people should think about whether or not they should be adopting that? Sure. Yeah, so the, the package, as we call it, has been out there from the beginning, so it was part of the original guidance. And effectively allows companies to carry forward their existing conclusions under 840. So specifically, there's three things that are addressed in the package. It says that you don't need to go back and reassess whether or not you had a lease in an arrangement. And for any existing leases, you don't need to reassess the classification of those, nor do you need to reassess initial direct costs. So again, If a company elects the package, basically they're going to continue to account for those existing leases as they had and will ultimately run off um, in future periods. And are we seeing most companies adopt that? 
I think that's our expectation is that most people will take the package. Again, you know, I think the key benefit is you don't need to go back and, and reassess all of your existing arrangements under the new guidance. Essentially, you would stick with what you've done historically, and then for new leases, that's where then you would need to think about them under the 842 guidance. So I guess historically, though, especially for operating leases, people may not have really had a lot of discipline around that assessment. So in that circumstance, then, Mark, how should people be thinking about that, those types of contracts? Yeah, so the area where we've seen, um, let's just say, the biggest lack of discipline is in the evaluation of whether an arrangement contains a lease. So companies often have supplier service contracts, and there may be a lease embedded within them. Under old gap, they may have ignored that since the since it would not have made that much of it. They, they would typically be operating leases anyway, and they would just flow through the PL as executory costs essentially. When people are, are thinking about that and they're taking the package of practical expedience, they really have to think about the evaluation under old gap because that's what you're carrying forward, your previous evaluation. Some companies have been asking, look, I don't have an evaluation. Let me just do the evaluation under the new guidance, under 842. And this is an area where the, the guidance under 840 and 842 differs. So under 840, if an arrangement um, relied on the use of a particular identified asset and you were the only customer taking the output from that asset, you were likely to have a lease. Okay? Under 842, there is another condition that they layered on top of, of that, that in order to have a lease, you also have to have the right to direct the use of the asset. So some companies are concluding that under 842, they may not have a lease without considering that it was actually easier to have a lease under 840. So the one warning we're giving people is, when you're taking this package of practical expedience, and we understand you may not have done a robust evaluation of whether an arrangement contains an embedded lease, do that evaluation now, but do it under the guidance of 840, not under 842. Okay, very helpful. So it's a carry forward, but if you need to make an evaluation, make sure you're applying the right guidance. Um, so Jillian, I guess then another sort of related topic would be the practical expedient related to hindsight. And can you kind of walk through what that practical expedient is and how people should be thinking about that? So hindsight essentially allows a company to reassess the lease term which is different than under 840, which we refer to as kind of a set it and forget it model. So under the old leases guidance, generally a lessee would never reassess the lease term. But now with the option of hindsight, if a company does elect that, then they can effectively take a fresh look at what the lease term for their arrangements is for purposes of calculating their lease liabilities on day one. Now, in contrast to the package, we don't actually expect a lot of companies to elect the hindsight practical expedient. And the reason is that when you do elect it, it needs to be applied consistently to your entire portfolio. So we actually think that this could be pretty challenging for companies and, and may result in a lot of additional work. Um, so at this point, it's not something that we're expecting most companies to, to look to elect. So then, Julian, you have to apply that for all or none, is that right? Right, so just like the package, hindsight has to be applied consistently across the entire leasing portfolio, so you can't pick and choose and apply it to individual contracts. And so for that reason, I think in contrast to the package, where we think a lot of people will take the package, we're not expecting a lot of companies to elect hindsight because it is challenging and would be incremental work to effectively go back and reassess your entire portfolio. Okay, thank you. I guess. 
Why don't we move on then and talk about the interest rate? So we've talked about the term and how hindsight may or may not impact your determination of the term. Um, but another important assumption in measuring the lease liability would be the discount rate. So Mark, can you give us a few highlights on that topic? Yeah, so just as a reminder, if you're a lessee putting these uh, lease liabilities on your balance sheet for the first time, you have to choose an interest rate to discount these liabilities at. And the guidance says you should use the rate implicit in the lease if that's readily determinable. We think for the vast majority of leases, lessees are not going to be able to readily determine that rate. So typically we'd expect people to use, in that case, your incremental borrowing rate. Um, The other point I want to get across is that the rate that we're supposed to use is actually the rate as of the date of initial application. So for example, if we're using this new transition expedient and applying the standard as of 1119, one would use the rates as of 1119. You'd actually not be permitted in the standard to use the actual rates had you documented them at the time you entered into the lease. You're actually going to be using new rates. Um, and so the other thing we want to point out is that obviously we're all aware that rates have been moving in recent months. So we suspect that some companies have kind of been already determining their rates based on you know, earlier in 2018 activity. And one may have to revisit that just because mm-hmm. rates have been moving, right? So pay attention to the rates that exist as of you know, 1231.18, effectively. Got it. Okay. okay. So what else should companies be thinking about as they're trying to figure out what rate to use? Well, companies are basically saying that, for the most part, they don't necessarily know exactly what their incremental borrowing rate is, right? The definition of that rate talks about that you have to borrow on a collateralized basis, um, an amount equal to the lease payments paid over a similar term, right? So we think it's, it's, it's almost like a theoretical rate. It's, you know, if you know what your lease payments are, right, what rate would you get if you borrowed that amount of money and you had collateral, okay? So something to be aware of if you're comparing that to other rates as a starting point, as a reference point, you know, obviously if you have collateralized borrowing, that's a good reference point. Some people are looking to treasury notes and then making adjustments for collateral and credit risk, right? And so just some things to think about is that it should be on a similar payment basis. Most treasury notes are due on a balloon note basis, right? They're due at the end of the term, whereas most lease payments are due ratably. So it may not be a fair comparison to compare a 10-year lease to a 10-year treasury note that's only due at the end. You may have to choose, as a reference, a shorter-term treasury note. Obviously, as I mentioned, you have to have collateral, okay? So you have to make adjustments for collateral credit risk. And then finally, a question that we've been getting a lot of is whether subsidiaries can use a parent's rate. And um, what we think the guidance says is that in order to use a parent's rate, you have to be able to um, assert that the lessor has relied on the parent's credit in pricing out the lease. And typically that would be evidenced somehow in the lease agreement. There would be references to the parent's credit. Okay, very good. So obviously with all of these, quite a lot to think about. I guess... Um, probably wraps it up for the actual um, standard, but maybe, Latina, before we wrap up the whole podcast, what are some of the challenges slash best practices we should highlight for people listening? Yeah, so particularly for our public uh, calendar year and companies, you know, there's not much time left on, on the clock for them to kind of wrap up, and so companies are facing a bit of a crunch. Um, you know, I think 
in terms of those items that are the most critical, we kind of uh, alluded to this earlier, right? They, they need to be able to get to the data in the system. They need to be able to determine what uh, their lease liability and right of use asset is as of 1119. And so making sure that those processes are in place and well tested, um, companies are going to need to think about controls and that those controls are in place, whether they're for the system, the automated processes, or for the manual workarounds that they're putting in place to be able to get to the information that they need. Um, and the other kind of big piece to note, if you haven't already been having conversations with your external auditors about what they're gonna audit, how they wanna look at the process, that you should probably be having those conversations right now because they're going to certainly be asking very, very soon about what documentation you have in the process and where your overall status is. And I guess last but not least, I would say be thinking about uh, quantification as we near SAP 74 disclosures and uh, getting that information uh, pulled together to be able to comply with that. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks all of you for joining us today. Great discussion on, on the new leasing standards and some really good reminders for companies as they prepare for implementation. And to our listeners, we want to thank you for listening to the episode. And if you are looking for more information on how the leasing standard may impact your company, please visit the leasing page on CFOdirect.com. In addition, for real-time updates, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can also subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, or any place else you get your content. We definitely love to have you in our community. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.